Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Stoyak, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and I'm the editor of the new Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, we'll be discussing Kai Johnson's 2016 novella, The Dream Quest of Villette Bow, published by Tor. And in this episode, we'll share forthcoming events. But first, let's do a quick plot summation of The Dream Quest of Villette Bow. Villette Bow is a former far traveler, an adventurer of sorts who roams the dreamlands searching for adventure. However, she is retired from such life, settling into an older age in the town of Ulthar, teaching at the Ulthar Women's College. One night, top student Claire Gerard goes missing, ran off with another dreamer. Sensing a scandal in that Gerard's father may take hostile measures against the girls' college, Bo sets off to retrieve Gerard before she absconds to the waking world. She parties up with a black cat from Ulthar, and together they set across the farmlands of Sky, the forests of the Zoogs, into the mountain of Hathigclaw, where the priests hold guard over a gate to the waking world. Bo is too late, and Gerard has crossed over. However, one of the priests at Hathiclaw is an old far-traveling companion of Bo, Nasht, who brings Bo up to speed of how dire the situation truly is. Gerard is the granddaughter of one of the many gods of the Dreamlands, who are mischievous, scheming, and petty. If he wakes up and Gerard is missing, it would mean catastrophic consequences for Ulthar and the surrounding lands. Bo needs to get to the waking world, but... She needs a key, and only one man can help her, Randolph Carter. She sets off to the faraway city that Carter rules from, Illich Vod. Her long quest will now turn into months. Nasht gives Bo an item that will eventually help her find Gerard, a cell phone. She arranges passage on the ship Mejeloik and crosses the Cyrenian Sea, making a few pit stops here and there, including her old hometown, her quest starts to attract the attention of other male factors. Finally, she makes it to Ilgvad and meets up with Carter, who in addition to being a dreamer, was also an adventurer from Bo's youth, and who had superficial romantic feelings toward her. They were not reciprocated. Turns out Carter has lost his key, and now the only way to get to the waking world is through the underrealms of the ghouls. Befriending them, and having them show Bo a secret path to one of the many graveyards in the waking world. Carter arranges an escort to help Bo on this part of her journey, while the black cat remains behind in Ilkbad. The party is soon attacked, and only Bo survives, escaping into the underworld. She eventually befriends some ghouls before she is captured by ghasts, only to be rescued by a gug that she in turn had rescued years earlier. The duo eventually make their way to the waking world, the gug turns into a car. Bo travels from Wisconsin to Montana and eventually locates Gerard, who is now a barista at a coffee shop and has long since separated from her dreamer love interest. Gerard is hesitant to give up living in the waking world. As the waking world, the math works correctly. The gods are not interfering. 
but she does decide to return back. Bo remains behind, though, in the waking world, because if she were to return, there would be vengeance from the old gods on her. However, Bo is not alone in the new world, for she has her Gug car, and the black cat from Ulthar, who has magically appeared. There's a, a lot to unpack from the dream quest of Alette Bo, uh, ageism, uh, sexism, uh, how it, you know, derives from the original source material, but I think to start things off, let's just talk about our general thoughts. So, Michelle, what are your general impressions of this novella? Well, having come uh, late to Lovecraft lore, uh, being it, be it uh, the Cthulhu mythos and the Dreamlands, one of the, the issues that I've always had with Lovecraft is the lack of female characters, the last lack of an entry point for a woman to gauge, engage with these materials on a more intimate level. And uh, I think Johnson, in her acknowledgement, mentions that first, her first reading of Lovecraft's story at the age of 10, she said, thrilled and terrified and uncomfortable, and she was uncomfortable with the racism, but not yet aware that the total absence of women was also problematic. She says that this story is her adult self returning to a thing that she loved as a child and seeing whether she could make adult sense of it. Um, I think that she does that. She creates a place in Love, Lovecraft's dreamlands that provides not only an inter, entry point for, like myself, uh, but a wider audience. But I think that she also sheds lights on the continuing societal negligence and minimizing of older women in our culture. Um, she wrote this story in her mid-50s, and the observations that she made through her character, Vel Velet Beau, um, conveys that sense of, you know, reflecting on those last vestiges of youth um, and that transition towards older age when you tend to be uh, less acknowledged in society. Your value is, is lessened as, you know, there's um, the lessening of, of perceived beauty. Um, and society has taught us to not really embrace us getting older. So um, I felt that that resonated, resonated very much with me um, and, in, and engaged me at a more intimate level than, I've, than I have with other uh, stories in Lovecraft uh, lore. Um, well, did you like it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. It's kind of a long-winded, uh, you know, my my general impressions. But yes, I did. Um, it's actually very personal because these, a lot of the things that, that Bo is thinking about on her adventures are a lot of the things that I'm thinking about right now. Um, Johnson wrote this when she was in her mid-50s, and I'm in, in my mid-50s now. And so there is that personal level, and yeah, I, I liked it. I think it, it actually articulates many of the things that I've been thinking about. Uh, what about you, Nick? Well, I have a, a kind of a different approach to the text. Um, the, the Dreamlands kind of has like a kind of a special importance to me, because that was like my big gateway to uh, Lovecraft, and that's, you know... We've brought him up many, many times in this podcast, and that's to the work of Gary Myers. And, you know, a lot of folks go for, you know, Shadow of Rinsmith, Call of Cthulhu, and all those fun stuff. But, you know, to me, uh, the Dreamlands and their associated, uh, the canon, the stories that make it up, is kind of like 
what I gravitate toward. That's that's kind of like my Lovecraft I, I like, and I like the successor stories that come from it. And so I've, I've been really excited to read uh, Dream Quest of Valette Bow for quite a while now, and I'm glad that we got around to it because it's a Dreamland story. Not enough people, I think, write in the Dreamlands. And uh, so I'm always excited to see a new story that takes place in there, to see what people uh, do with, uh, you know, setting it in the Dreamlands. And I wasn't disappointed. It's an excellent novella. It has many of the towns and people and geography that I know and love, and, but it really builds and expands upon, you know, the original Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. It's actually a good tweaking and subversion of that Lovecraft uh, uh, story, which we'll definitely get into. And I actually also really like uh, the, the Velvet Bow as a character. Uh, I buy into what she's doing, her personality, her thoughts, her aspirations, and it's painted crystal clear where she's been, and even though the story is, is kind of predictable, you know where it's going, there's still a lot of surprises along the way, and you're you're with her through all of it. You understand why she's doing what she's doing, and you get a, you know, her quest is our quest as well as, you know, yeah, sure, she's trying to kind of save the college, but at the same time, her observations of the world, her observations about herself, her reflection on, you know, where she's been and where she's going. Uh, those are my impressions of it. Uh, there's also a lot of really funny parts in the story as well. Is there any particular parts that you kind of, like, really liked or you thought were fun or unique or different? Um, I'm... I didn't feel that the story was necessarily unique insofar as that it hits uh, basically, I think, the same narrative beats that we have with the uh, source material of Lovecraft. Um, but I did find uh, the perspective from a woman uh, refreshing and interesting. Um, as far as the more humorous uh, parts, of course, I gravitate towards cats. We have two kitties. Um, we got two Ulthar cats right here, so you will hear them in the background, as you probably heard them in the background of prior episodes. Yeah, and we'll continue to hear them in future episodes, I'm sure. Um, but I know the the shenanigans of the cat that follows her. Um, I think, Nick, this was one that you, you and I talked about the fact that uh, Bo relieves her backpack of items as she continues on her journey after, I think, that first stop. And, of course, the cat decides, well, hey, great, now I can I can lay up there. And it's just, you know, it's cute. It It's a cat thing to do. Yeah, it's a cat thing. And as, uh, you know, a, a family of cats, um, you know, that was definitely something that, um, I gravitated to. I also, um, you know, we'll get into spoilers, but at the end, one of the things that I liked is Claire's fresh observations about the waking world and asking us to take a moment to think about it in a new way. And, you know, she's a barista, which is not like, wow, okay, that's not like the highest calling of people, but, um, and I don't mean that in, in a derogatory way in any sense, but, you know, the engagement of society is going to be that, wow, okay, of all things, 
you know, a barista. But she liked it. And she, the thing that she liked about it was that she was able to engage with people. Every day was new. Um, there was a randomness. There was, I impact a part of that person's day. And, you know, you can, you can have either a positive or negative impact. Um, and I, I liked her perspective. I thought it was refreshing. So I thought that was actually unique and, and an interesting take. I, that observation, we definitely are going to drill down on that on the second half of this podcast when we talk about the point of higher education and its role in the dreamlands and its unchangingness. So definitely uh, put a pin note in that to bring it back. I love the, the cat scene at the backpack. In fact, I'm probably a little envious because our cats don't get on our backs. <laughs> but, but when I read that scene, I, I had to reread it because it was fun. It's a nice whimsical moment. There, one of my other favorite scenes, though, is actually at the very end when they cross over to the waking world and the gug becomes a car. And at first I was I was actually really sad when I read it because, you know, here's this gug that um, Bo had saved when the gug was young and the gug came back and saved her and they kind of buddied up and they're friends, even though they can't really talk to each other. It gets transformed into a car. And at first I felt bad because, you know, you know, she, she still stays uh, a woman and he turns into a car and like, well, is he, is he dead? <laughs> is he, is he in an inanimate car or is he, does he still have his sentience? Even though he's a car, he can still think and perceive the world. But what I liked about the scene is the concerns I had, Bo also had, because she looked at the Zug car and was thinking the exact same things. You know, is it alive? Does it have a conscience? Is it happy being a car? Um, and I, I actually liked that I was kind of on the same page with her, because, you know, we both had same concerns for this, you know, for, for all purposes, it's a monster. You know, if you Google what a Gug looks like, they are pretty grotesque. But I, I felt at first sympathy for it, However, I, I kind of settled on to that it is still sentient, and it's actually happy being a car. It's like a puppy car, you know? He's in a new world, and he's going to go on a whole bunch of adventures with Bo driving around. They're going to see a lot of stuff. He, if he probably had a car tail, it'd be wagging. And that's, I, that's probably not what was intended, but that's what I shifted the narrative to. Uh, the, but just the, the thought that my concerns as a real-life person was reflected in the character I was reading as well. So, I don't know. It was kind of a... Uh, I, I think it was intended to be kind of a throwaway scene. Oh, it's a car. Oh, the, the, the waking world is trying to make things from the dreamlands work as normal as possible. But I think it was very, you know, artfully and probably philosophically done well. Yeah, I... I was really worried that the Gug was going to die. Um, and the concern that Bo has for the Ugg, or Gug, Gug, Gug <laughs> um, as she is stepping into the waking world. Um, we got Gugs, Zugs, Ghouls, Ghasts, Night Gaunts. <laughs> yeah, I noticed like all those G words. I was like, wow, okay, lots of Gs in there. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I actually thought the fact that she it was ready to go back and save the Gug again uh, really said, uh, spoke a lot to me, the fact that she was willing to, in that moment, let go of her quest and help another, another being. 
and the fact that ultimately the Gug became this big Buick old truck, <laughs> um, you know, that's reliable, um, and they they continue on their quest together. Um, I like that. I liked also that there, the Gug didn't really have a voice, but there was still that 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 companionship, that camaraderie. It was just very interesting uh, way of, uh, you know, continuing that com- that relationship in the waking world. So Dream Quest the Villette Bow is pretty overt that it's got some stuff to say. So I think we'll start off alphabetically with the A as in ageism. So Michelle, thoughts on that from you first. Yeah, there's a lot of ageism uh, discussed throughout the story. Um, they resonated uh, very closely to my heart. Uh, Bo goes through a lot of moments where she compares what it was like in her young 20s when she you know, felt that she had beauty, uh, there was a hardness to her, um, she understood travel, could read the signs of men, um, mentions that, you know, she'd only been robbed three times, uh, raped once, um, you know, and just that constant comparison. And there's a sadness that, that beauty and that value and that engagement with life is slipping from Bo. Um, and I think that this journey is her coming to terms not only with that transition of, you know, youth and the, those last vestiges of youth, you know, leaving her physicality while she still has the wisdom of her age to um, rely on rather than the beauty. And I think that's a, that can be a hard transition for women. Um, I know uh, I'll speak from experience that it's, it, it is difficult to look in a mirror and see what you think that you, what you want to see, but isn't what you're really seeing. And I think that Johnson does a wonderful job really tapping into, one, the conflict within a woman, but also the conflict that women have with the perceptions around her. For example, when she's on the ship, one of the young men, you know, treats her like she's 80, Um, and even goes so far as to think that, well, she's so old that she ought to be able to discuss ancient events. (laughs) And, um, that's really not the case. It's, it's interesting how the perception of age when you're young, you think, oh, that's so old and that's so different from what somebody when they're young is, but it really is just an evolution of that same person. And I think that for, I'm not going to say that it's easier for men because I think men also have a challenging life path as well. But for women, I think that Johnson really picked up on that. I 
I struggled towards the end really feeling, is there, um, is there a resolution? Is there a emergence of that youth and that wisdom to where Bo ends in the story? And I'd like to think that there is. I'd like to think that there is at the end with her car, uh, with her um, gug-churned car, this big <laughs> Buick, and the black cat um, there beside her that she's entering a new chapter of her life. And um, my thought is that when she got, if I remember correctly, when she and Claire meet up, the the conversation about women changes more to power, not not so much on beauty that Bo had been um, keen into through her entire uh, journey up to the point that she comes to the waking world. So um, that's part of the ageism. I I struggle because um, as Nick and I were discussing off off uh, microphone, I arrange my notes that ageism and gender really kind of coexisted and kind of intermeshed for me. Uh, for Nick, it's it, it, he was able to separate that out. So Nick, I'm actually interested in hearing your points uh, with regards to ageism and what you picked out. Well, by, by kind of a interesting happenstance, you know, the prior episode of our podcast, when we um, looked at a couple uh, short stories from Swords Against Cthulhu, there was another story that dealt with dreamlands and ageism, and we talked about that in pretty good detail, and that was uh, Jason Scott Aiken's Sword of Lamar. Um, it kind of has an overlapping theme with this, probably not executed as well, but in that story and I'll just uh, refer you to go listen to the prior episode. Um, in that story, there's an older lady from Arkham who reimagines herself in the dreamlands. Um, in the real world, she's she's very old. She eventually gets put into a, a house or an asylum, and her kids are scheming to you know take her fortunes away. But in the dreamlands, she actually becomes another person, and that other person is a young woman warrior. And... You know, at, at a surface glance of that, this says, oh, you know, you know, uh, a person can reinvent themselves. In this, in this case, she reinvented herself as a younger woman and was able to, you know, fight back the barbarian hordes. Which is a fine point. Uh, I think uh, Dream Quest of Villette Bow challenges that further. Um, Villette Bow doesn't need to reinvent herself. Unlike a Sword of Lamar, where the older lady has to become a younger woman in order to be successful in the story, Villette Bow doesn't. Um, her quest is, you know, she, she doesn't need to go back uh, to her old, uh, when I say old age, I mean her young age. Um, she she actually uh, quips a couple times the both hindrances and benefits of being an, an older person on her new quest. Um you know, the negatives being, you know, she has to kind of relearn a couple things, but a lot of it comes easy to her. Some of it's forever gone. But she also makes a couple observations that, you know, she has a newer appreciation and she's able to do stuff now that she couldn't before. And so, in a way, you know, the Bo says, no, uh, age isn't a problem. Sort of Lamar 
kind of hints at that age is a problem. You have to be a young person to get through it. Um, Villette Bo says no. Um, if anything, this story actually reminds me of another story I read, uh, which was Parting Gifts by Diane Duane. That was in Lynn Carter's Flashing Swords Number no. 5, Demons and Daggers. It's it's actually a very similar story. Uh, it's been a while since I read that one, but hey, Lynn Carter, Lovecraft, they all go together. Um, in that story, there's an older woman. Her name is Sarande, and she also goes on a quest. She receives a dream, and she goes out to kind of save the world, and she partners up with a cat as well. And her thing is, she's also an older uh, lady, uh, too. Um, but... In a weird sort of way, it seems like the story and Valette Bow, they kind of, they also kind of hint at that, you know, you got one more shot at one more great adventure. You know, there's always another opportunity to come along, regardless of your age, that, you know, there's something still big around the corner that you could, uh, you know, harness and go forth on. Now, I don't know if that's this, you know, kind of an implied American rugged individualism, um, you know, Think of like a movie like Unforgiving with Clint Eastwood or something like that. Or if there's something a little bit more there. Uh, the last thing I kind of want to bring up, it's just more of an observation, and it kind of ties into ageism a bit, is that there's no children in this book. There's kind of two, and they're in flashback. You know, there's there's Bo reminiscing of when she was a child kind of growing up, but, but those sequences are so few and far between. And the Gug... We keep coming back to that Gug. He, he's only like in the last eighth of the novella, but we keep coming back to that Gug. Um, of when Bo rescued it when it fell into like a pit of spikes and it was just a baby Gug. That's it. In the Dreamlands, there's really no children. Now, we know that's not true. I mean, you can read Dream... Not Dream Quest, I'm sorry. Uh, Cats of Ulthar, you know, and that story revolves around a little kid who has a cat, and the cat gets killed by the cotters of the town, and the kid's like, screw that noise, I'm gonna curse you all. Um, but it's still few and far between. I don't remember any kids in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadoth, but there's definitely an absence of children in... And the Dreamlands canon I've read, and definitely in this book, the the youngest people I can think of are the college students. And again, we'll talk about this in part two of, you know, if there are kids, what kind of future do they have in the Dreamlands? You know, this again, this is a, a world where people don't want to be challenged. The gods will erase anything you do. So kind of, what's the point? What's the point to even grow up here if there's no progression? Um... If anything, you know, Valette Bow kind of represents, before she goes on her new quest, kind of the the end road for everyone, and probably the end road for a lot of people. You know, how many folks would, would love to, age 55, be teaching at a school, live kind of a cozy life? I mean, in a weird sort of way, that's kind of... Well, it's probably a dream of a lot of people. Not, not necessarily accessible nowadays, but, um, you know, I guess in another way to tackle the ageism thing is Valette Bow, her starting point is a lot of people's end point as well. Yeah, I, the only thing that I would add to that it, that might help to understand um, maybe why there aren't so many kids is that uh, Claire says to uh, Bo uh, at the end of the story how she is just astonished how many women 
there are in the waking world, which to me, I mean, it seems like a small thing, but it, go, it, it gave me pause to think that, well, maybe there just are not that many women in the dreamlands. Um, and maybe that's why there are so few, few kids. Well, I think that's the perfect transition to our next big point, and that's the womenism and sexism that's in this story. And probably, and we'll talk about this, I think, in bigger detail, not just this story, but like just in, you know, the canon of pulp fiction and weird tales and the role of women in, in all this. Um, so, Michelle? Yeah, so like ageism... Gender has a lot to be unpacked with this story. And Nick, I think you and I both cued into the same quote. Um, And that's where Bo observes that she's never met a woman from the waking world. And Carter replied, quote, Women don't dream large dreams. It's all babies and housework, tiny dreams, end quote. And so, you know, that really does get to the crux of the you know whether it's Lovecraft whether it's any other pulp writer um the fact is is that women have have not been part of these stories and in in Johnson's story if anything we have an overwhelming number of women whether it's Bo, Claire, um even the ghouls I think the most of them are women in this story and um it gives us a good comparison to some of those other stories but johnson also does that comparison for us in this story for instance her former um i'm not sure that he's necessarily a love interest as much as a travel companion and that's the high priest nast um who she uh, observes as having grown very large, soft. Technically, he's dead as well. So, um, you know, years have not necessarily been kind to him. And then with Carter, she says that, you know, he has settled, um, you know, as well. He's now the king. He's not as adventurous. Um, you know, so life does change people. And while she's being critical of herself, she is also acknowledging that there are changes for for the men in this story. You know who that also happened well. to? Hmm. Riddick in the Chronicles of Riddick stuff. At the very beginning of the third movie, Riddick even comments that that's exactly what happened to him. He just kind of settled in. He was this kind of king of the world and everything. And he got soft and he get his butt kicked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, even even Bo goes through that when she starts out on her, her quest. Um, many times she said, you know, that she's very tired, she's sore, she didn't realize uh, how, you know, travel is so hard on the body. So she does kind of, you know, try to level that, that playing field. I think the one thing... Um, well, maybe she does it right, is, you know, how Carter looks at her when they're in the castle. And, you know, he looks at her with eyes. Well, he's still young. Yeah. 
he's he hasn't like really aged which is very interesting and i maybe you know uh, Nick, you can clarify like why that might be the case. They, they make a reference that the time in the dreamlands and the time in the waking world doesn't quite line up, because at some points, you know, you know, Carter's coming from the 1920s, but when um, Vlet Bo goes, you know, she's in modern day. You know, there's a cell phone there and everything. So th- there is a line in there, and I, I don't remember where it occurs, but uh, you know, people enter the dreamlands from the waking world at different parts of the time flow or something i mean they don't say time flow but that's kind of how i interpreted it and i think this kind of with that this goes for you know in a very einstein theory relatively you know times is going to flow differently for you here mm-hmm. well and i think uh and again this is a world where we'll come to this later i'm just fascinated by the line math does not work here <laughs> and so if math doesn't work here the stars aren't quite right there's only like 20 stars in the sky you know, why why would time even work here? And especially if you're an outsider coming in. So I, I think that's just kind of more of you're inferring that from what how you're kind of experiencing the story. Mm-hmm. But you are correct. Carter is not aging. He is basically more or less the same character as he was in the Dream Quest on Kadath. And I know we're going to talk way more in detail of comparing those two texts together. But yeah, he hasn't moved on. He's still young and... Valette Bo has moved on. It's been, I think, 25 years or 30 years or something between when they last, you know, hung out. And Yeah, I think it's like 30 years. And what's interesting is that she actually says uh, that she left him, which is, you know, kind of interesting. And she's got a good quote here. Uh, Johnson wrote a really interesting uh, observation through um, Bo's voice. And she says... The dream machine and the power of his passion had for a time attracted her, but in the end, she had not wanted a life spent treading water in his story. She still did not, and yet she regarded herself in the glass a little ruefully. To have that choice removed by time and age was painful. Um, and well, the what same a- thing happens to Claire as well. Yeah. You know, she, she's enthralled with the dreamer and his glow and all that stuff. And as soon as she she gets to the waking world, she's like, I don't need this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the whole new world for me here. And and I think what makes that, inter- it, what I find, it's like the answer is right there. You know, for, for Bo and for Claire, who articulates it that really clearly, is that women have value they don't have to have value in somebody else's story, in somebody else themselves. And um, if there's a lesson that we can take from this as women, is that we can stand on our own. It's not all about beauty. Um, yes, beauty is nice, but you know, in the end, we have our own story to tell, and this is Bo's story. I like that. So... Tying into a lot of that, I'm going to kind of take a more technical route at this one. But so again, I, I'm with you. The the line where women don't dream large dreams and, and underscore, he said it dismissively, you know, so he's not even entertaining this. It's all about babies and housework um, it is, is the central thesis of this entire story. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is, you know, 
Bo is a stand-in for Johnson as much as Carter is a stand-in for Lovecraft. And that, that's pretty much an established thing. You can look up a lot of Lovecraft scholarship. It pretty much Randolph Carter is H.P. Lovecraft incarnate. So what that means is for both Bo and Lovecraft is these characters' views are those writers' views. And for Lovecraft, that means that's a lot of men's writing views now and then. So Lovecraft you know, just didn't put women in his work. Uh, and those that are present, either they're there to get uh, raped to spawn, you know, Cthulhu babies, or they're written into the margins to have as little impact on the story as possible. And women not being able to dream big is because, well, we didn't allow them to. You know, that's not something that, you know, I don't think started getting chipped away until World War II. Um, when women started working in the men's workforce while the men were away at war, when men came back from, you know, you know the Pacific and, and Germanic campaigns, uh, they're like, we want our jobs back. And women are like, well, <laughs> we kind of like doing this. Um, you know, another way to kind of put it is the reason that women weren't allowed to, you know, dream big slash the reason why women aren't dreamers is because men like Carter didn't allow it. And Carter is Lovecraft and by extension, a lot of the men back then. Um... Now, this is also a statement for the lack of women writers, or at least barriers in place to stop women writers, uh, not just at the time, but even today. Uh, it's still a battle being fought. I mean, you could go online, you'll see things like Gamergate, Comicsgate, old school revival RPGs, sad puppies, and all that stuff, and they're all, they're all the same thing. It's all barriers put up to stop women and uh, other marginalized people from having the same things that us white dudes have. Um, now, you could say, yeah, there are women writers of weird fiction back then. You can point to folks like, and I'm going to mispronounce all these names, uh, Guire Laspina, Avril Worrell, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, uh, Eli Coulter, and I could see apologists pointing to these women and saying, hey, we got women, but, you know, those are always the exception and not the norm, and I'm certain, you know, the crap that these authors were putting up then is probably the same crap Johnson is probably putting up now. I don't know much about Johnson, but I'm pretty sure she has to put up with this bull crap as well. And so I think a lot of this attitude that Bo slash Johnson is seeing, you know, it's this social regression. And, and unfortunately, the pendulum is swinging back now. Well, even though we made a lot of headway on that, you know, in this age of Trumpism, you know, Poland banning abortion and stuff like that, it's unfortunately swinging in the wrong uh, direction. And finally, I do want to point out, though, in other stories, there are women dreamers, thankfully. So I, I, we talked a little bit about the Sword of Lamar earlier, how, you know, it was tackling, you know, ageism. You know, they took the route of the uh, the lead lady and it had to become young to be successful. But, um, so it made a noble attempt. But regardless, though, it still introduced a woman dreamer. Uh, so they're out there. Uh, and again, I think we started this whole podcast by saying, you know, there's just not enough Dreamland stories out there. And that's, you know, I think a lot of people see more mar marquee value writing Cthulhu stories than Dreamland stories. So I'm hoping... You know, maybe we'll see some more after the success of Valette Bow and other stories that people will write more Dreamland stories with women dreamers. 
Yeah, and to that point, this is an older novella. I think it was written in 2016, and it has won awards, and it has been finalist for a, a number of awards out there. So there is definitely an audience, a readership appreciation for having women in just in more of these types of stories. Uh, one of the things that I did want to make an observation about, um, to your point, Nick, is the fact that women have been dealing with this kind of stories and backlash and minimization of our voice for, you know, centuries. But I would say that for Lovecraft, I think that because he actually died before World War II, I think he had a lot of influence by World War One. And even though we didn't really have it here in the States, over in the UK, women were working in the factories. They were working in the arsenal factories back in the, the, the teens. And so, you know, and women were getting you know, we're getting the right to vote. So I think that there was a lot, a lot behind Lovecraft's writing this story because, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but I think this was written back in like the 1920s, 21? Quest of Unknown Kadath? Yeah. I no, it was. no, a little bit later. I think it was 30s. Okay. Well, we'll have to check that <laughs> out later. But anyway, um, I do feel that there's a lot of undercurrent with regards to that. I do want to say one minute, mention one other uh, character in here, um, and that is Claire, and the fact that um, she was attracted to the... I'm 100% wrong. It's the 20s. Started in 26, ended in 27. Okay, right. Okay. So, yeah. It just wasn't published until later. I think, like, what, 40, 43, something like that? It It wasn't published in his lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, published by Arkham House, 43. So that's that's where I got slipped up on. No, no problem. So anyway, Claire is very attracted to the waking world, as we've talked earlier. Um, And, you know, she initially, she doesn't want to go back to the dreamland. She doesn't want to go back to Althar. Um, She does not want to go back to her father. She does not want to go back to a world of lots of gods. And I know that we'll talk a bit about religion in the second half of our discussion. But I do want to bring the point up. She says... um, She doesn't want to go back where she feels that she is nothing. But after thinking about it, she says, quote, This is what life is then, doing things you hate. I thought if I came here, maybe it would be different. I could be something amazing. Uh, End quote. But Bo reminds her that she is something and can be something in Althar. And um, so Claire takes back the knowledge that she has of the waking world, a world without gods. Um, that she can go back and fix her world. Um, and I think that that, you know, there, well, there's a potential for another story in there if, if Johnson wanted to write about Claire's return uh, to Althar and the Dreamlands. Well, I will take a small break because our second section of this podcast is going to be about change, education, religion, and progressiveness but for now we'll take a little break and listen to dream away by the polish synth pop band nun
welcome that back. That was a little bit of Nun's Dream Away. Um, this is the second half of our discussion of uh, Velvet Bow. Um, in this section, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about themes on education, religion, and then we're going to finish up with a comparison of texts between Lovecraft and Johnson. So um, I think to get us started, um, Nick, you really picked up on the theme of education and progress. Um, you want to start that conversation off? Yeah, I mean, when your lead character is a teacher at an all-girls higher education institution, I think inherently you're going to have a couple statements to make about higher education. Um, <clears throat> when... The Dream Quest of Villette Bow first started off. I actually thought it was kind of more of a sexist thing. Uh, in the beginning, uh, the women's college is portrayed as being like very old, like everything is worn and used and battered. And I initially took this that the powers that be just didn't really care about women's education, and that's why everything was kind of outmoded. But as uh, Bo starts her quest and she's going through Ulthar and leaving the town, uh, she actually makes kind of a uh, a remark that sounds like all the schools in Ulthar are like that. And and as she kind of goes on her you know quest at large, it turns out the world at large is like that. Everything is just kind of regressed and old and battered and decaying. I mean, you know, she has a flashlight that barely works. I think there's one instance in the book she mentions a train, but it's so inaccessible that it basically just doesn't even exist. So, in real reality, the Dreamlands is kind of set in the Dark Ages, and it's kind of kept that way. Um, and one of the other things I kind of cued in on, and we talked about it very briefly earlier, is when uh, Claire mentions, you know, the math just doesn't work. You know, you know, she's so fascinated by math actually working that one plus one will equal two, that she tattoos, you know, uh, pi on her arm. Um, and this is something that I, I, I you know, take it for granted. Why wouldn't math work? You know, between the real world and the waking world and the dreamlands and whatnot, you know, one plus one equals two everywhere. Why would I even question that? You know, prior dreamlands uh, stories or any other fiction for that matter, it's just, you know, we're so ingrained that it works, but in the dreamlands, it, it doesn't. And, you know, in a world ruled by, you know, Crap gods, and that's a legit term. We used that term before. I think we were talking about some of Gary Myers' stories and some of the other <laughs> Dreamland stuff where there's all these crap gods out there, like a turnip god and stuff, but, you know, they're they're petty and scheming and useless and everything. But anyway, the math doesn't work, you know? But that's what they're being taught in these schools here. The math, it, and I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see me, but like the math works in the dreamlands. But, you know, Claire and now Valette Bow, you know, when they transition to the waking world, you know, they're, what they've all been taught doesn't apply in the real world. You know, all their, the, the histories, their math, how, ugh, I can't wrap my head around the math not working. But, you know, those skills don't necessarily translate to the waking world. But here's here's the funny thing, though, is when they do cross over, 
the real world magically makes it happen. You know, the gug could not exist in the real world. It became a car. Valette Bow, when she comes to the real world, for all purposes, she shouldn't know how to drive a car. She shouldn't know what a cell phone is. She shouldn't know what Montana or Wisconsin is. But they all start filling in on her. And it's, in a weird sort of way, the real waking world is more generous to people entering it from the dreamlands than it is for you and I, real people in the real world who have to go through K through 12, uh, higher uh, universe, you know, stuff like that, in order to, you know, make a name for ourselves, start a life, you know, white picket fences and all that fun stuff. Anyway, it's it's a really weird mix of, you know, these higher educations in the dreamlands. What are they for? They're, they're teaching us stuff that, in theory, wouldn't work in the real world. And in theory, doesn't even work in the dreamlands. Because if you think about it, this is a world that isn't going anywhere. What's the point of going to school when there's... We've talked about this very, very briefly earlier. When there's no future for these folks. Everything is kind of at the whim of jealous, petty, scheming crap gods. And... So what's the point? What's the point of bettering yourself, of getting a higher education of crap math, if some turnip god is just going to blast your house to glass? And, you know, Bo, even she doesn't overtly kind of say that, but you pick that up when she's, you know, traveling through the lands. Everything she sees is almost as if it was in her youth, or it's been utterly destroyed by a god. You know, a, a sunken city, uh, a charred remains, you know, that's that's what the outcome of Ulthar is going to be should she falter in her quest. So I guess that's my kind of wraparound way of the way that the higher education works in this world is they're teaching you things that in the real world doesn't work. So the real waking world has to adapt for that. And in the dreamlands, it's irrelevant because the gods will all squish it down anyway. And how does that translate to reality? Well, you know, uh, here in the real world, you know, we've all been kind of fed that thing of, you know, grow up, go to school, get a job, be successful. And that's not really panning out for a lot of us millennials either. So it's just kind of this weird amalgam of a whole bunch of, uh, why? <laughs> why indeed, especially when you give thought to the fact that Johnson is a university professor. So as a professor, what is she saying about higher education in the waking world? I think there's probably a bit of cynicism in here, or at least uh, hidden cynicism, because for Bo's character, it's her schooling that doesn't get her through her quest. It's her life experience before she retired to be a teacher and all that stuff. I think it's kind of hidden under the kind of naive notion of get a higher education to better yourself. And I think that's, you know, something that a lot of uh, teachers and even myself, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, puppet around. You know, there's a reason like you and I, you know, we're academic writers. You know, uh, we do this podcast. We write books or edit books right now. <laughs> Other people's essays get stuff published. We run an academic conference. We all, we all do this stuff to kind of add to this canon of education, but 
I guess, you know, there's that kind of cynic part of it is, well, why, why, do, why do we do it when the world is kind of regressing backwards and, you know, folks aren't kind of taking us up on what we're offering to the, you know, the cultural stew pot out there? What's Johnson kind of saying in the waking world about this? It's probably, you know, it's dressed up in that naive fashion of, yes, you know, school's a good thing. You still should learn your stuff. Uh... Not not to diminish <clears throat> higher education, but although it kind of diminishes itself at times, but at the same time, it's I think she's still getting at, you know, there's still no substitution for the real world lived experience, the connections you make of other people, the soft skills that you you develop outside of the classroom setting of <clears throat> being able to negotiate and talk to people, the ability to you know. <laughs> pack your bag properly to, you know, go on a travel, um, you know, both figuratively and metaphorically. I, I guess, in a way, if I had to say anything, is she's challenging her higher education. I mean, I can only assume that, you know, day by day, you know, she's teaching her classes. She has students that come in that are wide-eyed, bushy-tail, bright eyes that want to, you know, do something for themselves. There's probably people taking her classes as just, you know, get me through this. I, you know, want to do something else. Uh, <clears throat> you know, she's probably stymied by, you know, academic politics. And I think we see a little bit of politics in here. I mean, you know, <clears throat> Bo goes on her quest initially because of a political thing. If she doesn't get Claire back, her dad, who has a stake in all this, is going to, you know, do something vengeful. I mean, that's, you know, deans of school probably kind of placate that. Let's bring in the football team because they bring in the money, but uh, the cost of, you know, not putting as much, uh, you know, money and resources into developing other skills... Again, I'm kind of rambling here, but I think I think you kind of get the gist of what I'm saying is I think she's maybe a little fed up with it, maybe a little challenging it, saying, you know what, I've I've done this shtick for a while, I've seen it all, let's put it on paper so maybe you, you all can kind of see where, you know, sometimes it pans out for people, sometimes it doesn't, but regardless, it's, you know, your life experiences that, you know, that is really your true companion at your side, much like her black cat. <laughs> and I, I love the black cat. <laughs> well, I I focus more on rather than the education, but I I now see how my theme that I picked up on could really fit within this effort to understand about the educational system within the dreamlands versus the real life experiences and how that how that works in the waking world and what i really picked up on was the religious theme and as you were talking nick i got to thinking about the fact well part of the reason the ineffectual nature of education in the dreamlands is this overriding sense that the gods will do what they will do and that um most of the gods are held in a very negative light. Crap in the gods. <laughs> crap gods that are basically there to destroy things and people. Um, and we find that Bo becomes becomes the attention of the gods. They, they chase after her. They want to basically put her into the position that she's going to watch them destroy Ulthar and other 
accounts in in the dreamlands as a way of I would say punishing her for going on the quest that she did it's almost well could we say it is you know a punishment to go against the establishment um well she's interfering with the power plays that they are having place. You know, they want to yep. get Claire to the waking world. So Claire's granddad wakes up and says, uh, bleh, you know, so yeah, she, she's definitely going against the establishment here. In this case, the establishment of petty, vengeful crap gods. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Bo even says, uh, reflects on her memory of saving the young, um, Gug, because we haven't had enough gug in this story. We, we love the gug. We do. We do. So, I mean. We love the gug and we love the black cat. Yeah. And um, she reflects that, quote, the minor gods could not combat their masters. Not directly. But they were not without resources. In a land defined by dreaming men and bickering gods, there were no sure rules but there was also no certain randomness, um, end quote. And I think that that is another way that we get to the crux of you can go and you can study and you can learn theories and you can talk um, about the various concepts, but there, there is not going to be a change. There's, there's no worth. There's no value because at the end of the day, it's going to be the gods that will make the decisions. I think that as I was reading this, it, it led, it caused me to think about a lot of the other kind of epic tales from the ancient uh, ancient civilizations in which gods meddled in, in, in into human affairs. Jason and the Argonauts. Well, yeah, that was actually <laughs> one of the ones I was thinking about, you know, where Zeus is looking, looking down, he's got the... Uh, the various uh, pieces of the different players, you know, and even the fact that Claire herself She's is a, a she is a god, and Animal. she and uh, she has a, a place to play in this story, and I think that that's the other side to the educational theme that that we've that we've been discussing with regards to the story. I think that's the the uh, another side to to that theme. That's probably, you know, the first half of this podcast, we really drilled in on that one line about the lack of women and they can't dream big. And I think that's our second half of this podcast is, you know, religion and education all comes down to progressiveness, which comes down to change. And I think that's kind of the other part of what we're talking about here. The other theme of this book is change, change in the dreamlands, change in the waking world. And you can really see that when you compare and contrast Dream Quest of Valette Bo to Dream Quest of Unknown Kadoth. If y'all recall, if you can, if you want to go back to archive.org and pull up an older episode, we talked pretty much extensively about uh, Dream Quest of Unknown uh, Kadoth, and our uh, colleague Adam Crowley he made an observation of that story was a low stake story. Carter can fail in that story and it will make lick difference. You know, his quest is he dreamed of a really nice city and he wants to go find it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, we all have desires. We all have wants. You know, we all want to better ourselves. We all want to do stuff. It, it's kind of the Indiana Jones approach. Yeah, you know, there's repercussions in Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, the third movie with Sean Connery, rest in peace, you know, with the Ark and the... 
the Holy Grail that, you know, if he doesn't get those, you know, bad things will happen. But the beginning of the third movie, he's trying to get the Cross of Coronado. For for what? You know, if he doesn't get it, it's not the end of the world. You know, a museum won't have the cross. Maybe it'll come back, uh, an opportunity will come back later. I kind of see that Indiana Jones tale, a uh, similar thing for Randolph Carter's quest. He just wants to, you know, go to this beautiful city. And of course, at the end of the book, he, he has his epiphany of, oh, you know, the, the waking world is really where I belong. I miss, you know, New England area and stuff like that. And he wakes up there and all is well. And of course, we know that short-lived because Dream Quest developed, though, puts him right back into the dreamlands. But from all that meandering I'm saying is through Randolph Carter's quest, his quest in Adam Crowley was right. It is low stakes. He can succeed and he can fail. The dreamlands, the waking world will be the same. Carter himself barely changes. You, it could be argued at the end of the text, he's a different person, maybe, that he realizes the importance of the waking world, but Villette Beau's uh, story negates that because, obviously, he's back in the uh, dreamlands, he's being a king here, just like his friend in Cephalese is, so Carter doesn't change. And in fact, I think Villette Beau even points out, you know, we talked, he doesn't age. He's basically the same Carter then as he is now. Um... The characters that Carter interacts with in his quest don't change. You know, he does, he forms a couple relationships. You know, he befriends some cats, he befriends some zoogs, he goes on a boat ride. But no one, it's it's the opposite of um, of uh, John Carter and the Barsoom stuff. Uh, you know, you can have two types of stories. Either your main character changes... And that's what's happening in Villette Bow. She's changing. You know, it's never too late to change. She's 55, an older lady. She's still going on a quest. She's still learning about herself. She's still changing and evolving. Uh, that's not what's happening for Carter. The other um, thing is the world changes around you. And that's what happens in Edgar Rice Burroughs' stories. Uh, you know, John Carter goes to Mars. He's the same. But the world changes around him. So... And, you know, neither approach is right, wrong, or different. They're just ways to indicate change. And which is, you know, a good thing. We want to see change. Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath does neither. It is the status quo that we've been kind of talking about. It actually reinforces the the regressiveness that we've we talked about in the first half of this podcast segment of, you know, you know, why aren't there women dreamers? We're not allowing it. Why aren't we allowing it? Well, the real answer is, you know, us white dudes aren't allowing it. And the dreamlands, you know, it's petty, scheming, vengeful crap gods. And so, you know, there's these societal and when I say societal here, structures in place, it's not necessarily just societal. These are political and especially religious structures in place. But, you know, this isn't, you know, uh, Catholicism, Islamic, Jude, you know, whatever. These are turnip gods and carpet gods and gods of the third star of Algol or whatever. You know, they're crap gods that fall asleep on the couch. And if you wake them up, they'll destroy you. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was thinking as you were were talking about the the purpose, and I think that uh, it bears uh, mentioning that for Lovecraft when he was writing the Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, it very much was an adventure story, and that that's a boy's story, you know, to go on an adventure. 
I was also thinking of the fact that Lovecraft was also world building with his story. And so there, it was low stakes. It was more about, hey, come on an adventure with me. Swashbuckling type story, which is what kids back then would have done. Yeah. You know, given the, the time period that he wrote that, it was totally something, hey, let's go on an adventure. Let's go see all these monsters. Let's, you know you know, encounter different, a, a different world and come back and, and be able to be safe and snug back in my, in my room. Well, you know, uh, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, referring to Johnson's comment of trying to adult, adultonize, I know that's not a word. But, it is now. But to basically give an adult lens to that story we we get that through this story. The fact is, is that now you can't go back. You know, Bo cannot go back home. And she realizes at the end that home was really when she was at Althar. That it wasn't about the next big adventure. Um, that it was about, you know, being there, teaching, and, you know, engaging with, with new students every year. And so I think that that, you know, helps to, to gain some uh, understanding and, and to have a better idea of the comparison between the two texts and what was going for from each writer. The fact is, is that, you know, this is a more adult story. And, it, and there's and stakes. There's actual stakes involved. If, yes. If she fails, there are repercussions. Oltar and the town and the college will be reduced to rubble, you know. So, you know, Carter can fail and probably in a very <laughs> men-like society gets away with it. It'll be fine. There's no repercussions. There's no change. It's just a walk in the park. If isn't that kind of weird? Maybe it goes back to the, the women's stuff. It, Carter isn't carrying the world on his shoulders, but she is. If a, a woman, you know, fails, there's, you know, dire consequences. If he fails, eh, no biggie. Well, right. And um, although it's been quite a while since I read that story, I, d- I did go back and I read the synopsis. And one of the most telling things was right at the end, you know, when he meets up with and talks to Nyathrothotep. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he is sent off. He thinks he's going back home only to find out that the the god has, has been a trickster and is actually sending him off to his doom. And, you know, he's thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, right. All I have to do is wake up. And he wakes up. You know, Bo doesn't have that option. And you're right, Nick. She has the, she has the world. She has these cities she has people that are relying on her to come through and to finish the quest. And that's not something that we get with, with Carter. It's like you said, there, there are no stakes for him. It's low stakes and, you know, he's able to wake up at the end. And, she, she doesn't. And not just the Carter and Dream Quest of Onun Kadath. It's the Carter in this story as well because he is the same Carter. And... Uh, this was a theory that you were bouncing around more or less, but you know, when when Bo comes to Carter for help to find the key, Carter basically says, "I lost it. You're gonna have to do something else." But you know, did he really lose it, or is he just you know being you know petty and vindictive because you know he he made romantic advances to her 
uh, earlier in life and she said, yeah, screw that noise, I don't want none of that. It's very well possible that, you know, <laughs> Carter, you know, has the key and just doesn't want to share it. Keep, you know, keeping kind of things unchanged. You know, he doesn't involve himself in her story. He wants her to be part of his story, not the other way around. And his story is non-changing. You know, for... Again, Bo's consequences have no impact on Carter. If if Bo fails, you know, yeah, Ulthar is destroyed, stuff like that. Again, Carter gets away scot-free. I'm making it sound like Carter's an asshole. I don't think he's an asshole. Uh, although I think the additional character development that uh, that happens to Velvet Bo doesn't portray him in the, the best of light. I mean, I guess he does the bare minimum to help uh, Bo out. He gives her an escort. They're all pretty ineffectual. They all die. He doesn't really have any information other than go through the ghouls. You know what? That's shit she could have learned back when she climbed the mountain two-thirds of the story ago and saved her some time. You know what I'm saying? Um, I guess what I'm just trying to say is, you know, Carter gets a free pass at a lot of stuff. She doesn't. No, and I, I thought that you made a great point when, when you, the word you used was petty. And I immediately, it again reinforced, at least in my, in my view, that uh, Carter was being just as vindictive and petty as the gods that Bo was dealing with. She even deals with the same thing with Nast, also another person from her youth that had been a friend, had been a companion. And they're both barriers to and, her and they tr- are. to her thing. They are. Uh, with Nast, he actually makes her sit and wait for, well, what, like two or three days when, you know, so she loses time because he has nothing to give her. He talks about he gives the, her a cell phone and get, and, and brings her yeah. in on the stakes. But again, yeah, he could have stopped it three days. You know what? Hey, you just missed it and they went through here, but let's get you on the right track here. Yeah, I mean, he could have been helpful. But, I mean, I think there the subtext is that, I'm going to infer, that the subtext is that, that men are not always very, very helpful. Unless they're a cat. Unless... Well, and the cat was a woman. Oh. Was a female cat. Well, kitty. I was thinking of other Dreamland stories. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the fact is, is that all the men were barriers. They were barriers in some form. They were not, they weren't helpful. Bo had to carry it. And, I mean, I think the, the context is that women have to deal with a lot of crap and they have to support a lot. You know, women... In the waking world, we we have to earn our keep. We have to be mothers, wives. Um, we have to be all these things. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to like get high onto the feminism train, but you know, it is not an easy road. It isn't an easy road whether you're male, female, or how, however you identify oneself. So we all have stories, we all have things that that we bear. But I think what Johnson does here is that she does try to level some of the playing field and give us a story that allows for a wider audience to associate with that source material and and to explore that world in a different way and have that, that 
interaction. Well, different way, but also the same way. If you think about it, the dream quest of a Velibo hits the exact same beats and yeah. almost the exact same time frame are parts in the, the narrative structure as Dream Quest of Unknown Kadoth. They both more or less begin in Ulthar. They both go through a forest of Zugs. They, you know, they, they both have a, a, a ship ride across the Serenian Sea. They both have a, a section where you gotta traverse, you know, underground at the ghouls and stuff. They both end in the waking world. Um, you know, they, they hit the same beats at the same time. They're roughly the same length as well. They're both novellas. Um, uh, it's just, uh, for all purposes, they are, it's so weird, they're, they are the same story, the same coin, different sides, uh, male perspective, female perspective, high stakes versus low stakes, it, it's just kind of, it's interesting, I don't, I don't consider Dream Quest Develop, but I don't see it as a parody or a pastiche of, you know, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, I see it I don't think subversion's quite the right word because it, it's it's not. I don't think it's make being derogatory to the original text as much as building on it and in the process of building on it, being able to say much more. Now, part of that is this the craftsmanship or lack of craftsmanship of Lovecraft. You know, that's one of the things that we we pivot on. Sometimes Lovecraft's a really good writer. Sometimes. He's not the best writer. And I th I th if I recall our prior dialogue with Dream Quest of Unknown Kadatha is one of the reasons it hadn't been published is it needed some work. Um, it, it definitely does. There's a, there's so much telling and not showing. And the weird thing is, is, is Johnson's book has, it, it, it mimics that. There's a lot of telling, not showing as well. You know, there's this offhand mentions of, oh yeah, he's from this town and, you know, there's the mountain there and, you know, that person's feeling kind of sad and everything. But, I, I think it's more kind of aping the, um, or mimicking is probably a better word, the general tone of the original story, while her, while Johnson's actual craftsmanship of showing what's going on through uh, Bo's thoughts, impressions, desires, and feelings is is what's there that's absent in Carter's original story. Um, so it's just kind of funny that both stories, they, I mean, they even share the same title. Come on, I mean they are they are weird mirrors of each other, and they 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 show their respective things, and they show their respective things very successfully in a very yin and yang type fashion. Yeah, I I totally agree, Nick. Um, I feel the same way. I didn't feel that she was trying to belittle the original text. I I put this with other books where you have you know, various literary pieces out there that are held on a, on a pedestal. Um, I'm thinking of Moby, Moby Dick and the novel that was rip, written that I think is called uh, Ahab's Wife or something like that. Um, I haven't read it, but, you know, I hold, I feel like this is that kind of literature um, that builds from there and gives us a different avenue in which to appreciate there's a shakespeare text. story is it there like rosencrantz and gilderstern are dead it's like kind of the same thing it's like a i think it's, so it's like a jab at the original kind of shakespeare but building on it as well yeah, i haven't read that i mean I, I i haven't either but i mean i don't feel like there's necessarily a jab maybe a little bit with regards to carter and you know not really changing 
Um, but I, di I didn't walk away feeling that this is a jab to the original as much as trying to build one, you know, give a nod back to that original. But like Johnson said at the beginning, was to revisit it and, and make it an adult story that she would be proud of. And I think she should be proud of it. It's a great story. I, I think I've only got one more point to kind of make, and then I'll kind of help wrap this up, because this, this has been a really good dialogue. It's, it's our first kind of long text that we've had on this podcast. The one other kind of compare and contrasting between this and the original Carter version is uh, Carter needs his butt saved a lot. <laughs> Car Carter, through his That's quest, fair. not only is it so low stakes, he has to be saved. He gets saved by cats flying to the moon. He gets saved f cats by the Zoogs. Um, I believe there's a sequence at the end on a, on a ship that, you know, there's a big battle there, and he gets saved from that. Um, you know, he, he gets... He, he's not able to save himself, okay? Um, and I guess that's something to say that despite his story being so low stakes that he can't even save himself. Isn't that kind of tragic? On the other hand, Bo, uh, this is the epitome of kind of the, you know, if you want to go the Republican conservative, pull you up by your bootstraps, she has to do that. The only time she, I mean, she has to be saved is at the end by our favorite Gug. That's it. And the reason that she saved is because she saved him in the past. You know, they, pref you know, it's kind of a, reinforces the importance of relationships, doing good. You know, you never know when karma might come back and stuff like that. That's the only time she's saved. Now, I know when she's going through the Zug Forest, you know, the cat is kind of helping. I, I think she probably still could have made it without the cat. I, I hate to say, if you take the cat out of the story, she could get by, but it's nice having the cat there. Blasphemous. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I have been struggling. I love the cat. I really do. But at the same time, you kind of got to ask yourself, when you're writing a book, everything has to have a purpose. What's the purpose of the cat? I mean, you know, she doesn't talk to the cat. The cat the cat can't she even. She does. No, no. Well, Carter I mean, can actually talk, talk, yeah, talk to the but, cat. But, I mean, she does talk to the cat no, like no, the But the she's cat a traveling companion. If anything, the cat does fulfill the role of a traveling companion because the other thing, Carter always has to be saved, but he also always has some sort of traveling companion with him at some point, and the cat kind of fulfills that role. You gotta have a somebody with you. You know, we're not all islands here. And the mm -hmm. cat... And that's kind of what I settle on. The cat makes sure that Bo is not an island. But but here's the deal. Bo still has to negotiate almost 99% of the story herself when she has people like Nast and Carter and other people getting in her way. She has to charter her own ship. She's got to go through the Zook Forest. She's got to... Even, even when she's traveling with the ghouls, she's got to fight them herself and stuff like that. You know... She she's very independent, very reliable. Um, Carter, on the other hand, is help me. I've been captured by slave traders. Kitties, come and save me. Well, I would add to that uh, just to take it a step further in with regards to this story is that Carter's assistance doesn't help her either. The, He's ineffective. Yeah, the even in her story. Yeah, the escort. He provides get slaughtered immediately. Oh yeah, <laughs> she could have gone by herself. I think you they know? died the first night. And again, <laughs> you know, he doesn't have a key to give her, and we kind of like 
brushed on. Well, maybe he's just keeping it from her. Well, and the, the passwords. I think the only thing that kind of helped, and we don't know what's in the box, is the box he gave her to give to the senior. To the ghouls. Yeah. But, you know, I'd like to think because, again, she's had adventures in the Underdark before, that I think Bo would have been clever enough to oh, yeah. to broker that herself. Oh, I, yeah. I, I think so. Yeah, but definitely. anyway, so that's kind of like the last point I got to make. Compare and contrasting. I, I feel like I'm I'm sh- I'm crapping on the original Dream Quest of Unknown Kadoth, and I don't mean to because I love that story. I love I, I love it more for the world building, to be honest. Because you know it has. I think I opened this podcast by saying it has got, it's got the people, geography, and things I I love, and that's you know I see that stuff like in Gary Myers' stories. In fact. You know, again, I, I'm the 180. Gary Myers is my dreamland. It's not Lovecraft. Um, uh, and I still think it's a fun story, even though it is low stakes. And I still think Carter's a neat character. And I, I think in more capable hands, he wouldn't be so one-dimensional. There's What we don't know is all of Carter's other stories in the dreamlands. He probably... he. We, we know he's probably actually had high-stakes stories out there. Just unfortunately, what's been presented to us is, you know, not so much. Um, and I, I, I think, I, I guess another way to put it is what Carter's story is lacking is what Velet Bow's story builds on and makes it fills those holes. Yeah, and um, again, I agree with that. And I think that we, it bears keeping in mind that even though um, Lovecraft is controversial with regards to uh, the racism, the gender, the absent gender of women, uh, the fact is I look to what he's done. He's created worlds in which he's opened up for so many writers to play in. He created sandboxes for people to come after him and create and reimagine um and that that's that's the true power of Lovecraft right there what he what he opened up for people to then explore and make their own and that's kind of the point of our podcast here there you know Lovecraft stories are a dime a dozen you know it's a it's a whole cottage industry to look at Lovecraft and all his stuff, but you know the sandboxes that other people are playing in don't always get that love. You know, a lot of successor writers are written off as hacks, derivatives, uh, or stuff like that. And you know, I think one of the things that you know we try to do in our podcast is let's turn our attention to that. Lovecraft's had his time. You know, there's other folks that are that have taken his torch and done it better. And that's the stuff where the spotlight needs to be. And that's what we're hoping to kind of accomplish with this podcast, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think on that note, we've come to come to an end with regards to our discussion of uh, Kai Johnson's The Dream Quest of uh, Villette Bow. Um, definitely an enjoyable book uh, and led to quite a, a lengthy and healthy discussion. And so on that note, we're going to take another listen from Nun's Dream Away uh, from the album Sunlight uh, before moving on to announcing some upcoming events. Now it's
Again, we like to thank Nunn for giving us permission to use snippets of their song Dream Away from their album Sunlight as the transition music for this episode. I feel like a, a song about dreams is uh, <laughs> very uh, complimentary to the subject matter of this episode. Uh, a link to Nunn's music is in the show notes. Uh, in episode four of HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we'll be interviewing Robert Otone, author of a new collection of short stories, Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, published by Spooky House Press. Bram Stoker award-winning author James Chambers states that Robert is a bold, new voice in dark fiction, and his collection is filled with vivid characters, deft plot twists, uh, skin-crawling creatures, and weird supernatural entities that will haunt readers long after the story ends, end quote. The interview will post on Sunday, November 15th. And we will have a new episode of Scholars from the Edge of Time streaming on Thursday, November 26th at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Time and available afterwards for download. In case you missed it, in October, our guest was Dark Fantasy science fiction writer Janet Joyce Holden. She is the author of the Vampiric Origins of Blood series and the Supernatural Carousel series. Janet's short stories have featured in numerous collections, including 18 Wills of Horror and Halloween Tales. Link to the show is in the show notes and on HP Lovecast. In episode 34, we will discuss two short stories from the new anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever, edited by Lovecraftian scholar Nick Mamatas and published by Dover Publications. This podcast will drop on Sunday, December 6th, Copies of this collection can be purchased at your favorite online booksellers. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website's at hplovecast.com, and of course, you can also email us at hplovecast.gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. Uh, both Michelle and I have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to. As always, thank you for listening, and please keep safe and healthy.